0: This month on Security Management Highlights.
1: One in ten people had experienced this kind of behavior, but only one out of those ten then reported it to the authorities.
0: Sexual harassment and assault is a reality for some public transit riders, but surveys show the incidents often go unreported by victims. Associate Editor Megan Gates is here to talk more about her June cover story on how two large metropolitan transit authorities are working to address the problem. Plus...
2: We try to prepare as best as we can and we don't do that as just our office or department. We do that across our UCF community.
0: The University of Central Florida is taking its campus security program to new heights. We speak with UCF Assistant Director of Security Joe Souza, CPP PSP, about the personnel, technologies, and processes it's implementing to keep students and faculty safe. I'm your host Associate Editor Holly Gilbert Stowell, and that's all coming up on this month's edition of Security Management Highlights. In a 2013 survey, London's Transit Authority found that 1 in 10 of its customers experienced unwanted sexual behavior while using the system. But 90% of those incidents were not reported to authorities. In this month's cover story, Associate Editor Megan Gates explains that this trend is not uncommon among transit riders around the world. She talks about how both London and Washington, D.C. are attempting to stop sexual harassment and assault aboard public transportation. Hello Megan, thank you for joining us once again on the podcast. Hey Holly, thanks for having me. Let's start by laying out the problem. How widespread is sexual harassment and assault on public transit and how often is it reported?
1: Yeah, those are good questions, Holly, and this is something, you know, transit authorities have been looking at for a little while, starting before the Me Too movement started. But sexual harassment and assault, they are prevalent on transit systems. There was a recent survey by Transport for London London's Transit Authority, and it found that one in 10 customers experienced unwanted sexual behavior while using the system, but 90% of those that experienced that behavior did not report it to the police at the time. And this mirrored a wider trend that people do experience sexual harassment or assault on a transit system, and then they just don't report it. And the Global Mobility Report published by the World Bank in 2017 actually talked about this phenomenon, and they had a great quote saying, The lack of personal security or the inability to use public transport without the fear of being victimized, whether on public transport, walking to or from a transit facility or stop, or waiting at a bus, transit stop, or station platform, can substantially decrease the attractiveness and thus the use of public transit. So this is a major issue uh, that transit authorities are trying to deal with.
0: And as they try to deal with it, you spoke to some officials, let's start out with London as a case study, who are working there to address the problem on their transit systems. What did they tell you about their efforts
1: in London? Yeah, so I did some research and then spoke to some people from Transport for London. Again, London's Transit Authority serves more than 8.8 million people. I spoke to their senior operational policy manager, Compliance, Policing, and On-Street Services, Mandy McGregor. She said that they knew that sexual offences they were widely underreported generally, and so in two thousand and thirteen, Transport for London decided to do its first ever safety and security survey, and they asked people about unwanted sexual behaviour and if they'd experienced it, and then if they'd reported it. And this behaviour included staring, groping, rubbing, masturbating, ejaculating, flashing, and upskirt photos. Basically, they categorized it as anything that made someone feel uncomfortable, you know, and they had the same results that I mentioned earlier. One in ten people had experienced this kind of behavior, but only one out of those ten then reported it to the authorities. And so Transport for London, they wanted to find out, you know, why people weren't reporting it, um, if this was happening in their system, and they found that there were four main barriers to reporting. Normalization, you know, that this behavior is so prevalent in society that it's not considered abnormal for this to happen to you, so you don't need to report it. Internalization of using it as a coping mechanism of, oh, this didn't really happen, or, you know, if I don't talk to anybody about the fact that it happened, then it isn't real. Also, then, lack of awareness of the reporting process. And then lack of credibility, you know, believing this happened to me and no one is going to do anything about it, so there's no point in me reporting it. And so once they identified these barriers, they decided to create a big public awareness campaign to, to address them and really get people to start reporting these instances when they happen. So the campaign is called Report It to Stop It. It's on posters, social media, videos, case studies and it just encourages reporting incidents through a dedicated reporting line, texting service, or via transit employees. In Transport for London, they've already seen a 64% of people who agree that they're more likely to consider reporting. And they also saw a 36% increase in the number of reported instances after they rolled this campaign out.
0: You also spoke to transit authorities right here in Washington, D.C. about how they're trying to curb incidents of harassment and assault. I know I was getting off the metro a couple years ago and they were partnering with a group that you write about, um, just trying to make people aware of their efforts. They also, the transit authority, conducted a survey in 2015 on sexual harassment and assault, what did that survey tell them?
1: Yeah, so DC's Metro Service serves a population of roughly 4 million people in the greater District Maryland, Virginia area. They did a survey in 2015 and found that sexual harassment was also underreported in their system. of survey people said that they'd experienced sexual harassment. Women were three times more likely than men to experience it, but of those, 77% never reported it. And then they also surveyed and found that just 41% of people were familiar with the anti-harassment campaign at the time that Metro was running. And so to kind of address this problem, Metro partnered with Collective Action DC and Stop Street Harassment to create a new campaign using slogans like you have a right to speak up, and you deserve to be treated with respect. And they've also changed their system about how people can report sexual harassment that occurs in Metro. So they allow anonymous reporting now, and also that you can report via a dedicated web portal, email, texting, or just reporting it in person at a, at a station. Since they, they made those changes, they've seen an increase in the number of incidents that have been reported, 61 in 2017, compared to just 37 in 2016.
0: We're hearing a lot about sexual harassment and assault often obviously, these days in the news. So I think it's very fitting to have this as our cover story and to talk about how the transit sector is dealing with this issue. Thank you so much, Megan.
2: Yeah,
1: thanks for having me, Holly.
0: Finally, in March 2013, the University of Central Florida, located in Orlando, found itself dealing with a situation that every school dreads, reports of an armed student in one of its dormitories. As UCF Assistant Director of Security Joe Souza, CPP, PSP explains, the situation ended with no deaths or injuries but propelled the university to reevaluate its security technologies and processes. I began my interview by asking him to recount the frightening situation in 2013.
2: So in March of 2013, a former student who was still living in our student housing had plans to become an active shooter. He had amassed a bunch of weapons and improvised explosive devices, and his plan was similar to that of the recent Parkland, Florida shooting, where he had pulled a fire alarm and had had intended on shooting as many people as he could as they exited the building. So he had made his Facebook post before executing his plan, and uh, he had Uh, several weapons, so he had taken his semi-automatic weapon that he had, and he had replaced the magazine with a barrel magazine. That ended up being a fortunate thing for UCF, because he had pulled the fire alarm just after midnight, and he was in with multiple other roommates. So his roommate exited his room, the gunman pointed his gun at his roommate, pulled the trigger, and it had jammed, and it had jammed because he had replaced that magazine with a barrel magazine. His roommate was fortunate enough to be able to go back into his room and call 911 and that's when the gunman took his own life. As the police responded, they didn't know at the time the gunman was dead and they didn't know if he was acting alone or if there were other um, shooters involved. And unfortunately, at that time, the camera system in that building was on a standalone digital video recorder. So it took quite some time for the footage to be reviewed and see what led up to the attack. After the police did breach his room, they realized uh, that the number of weapons, ammunition, IEDs, and he had a a very well-written plan of how he was going to cause a mass casualty incident at UCF. So it was really um, a fortunate end of that event for us.
0: Yes, such a frightening situation and yet so thankful that nothing bad happened in the end. It did propel the university to reevaluate its security technologies and look at hiring new personnel and changing some processes. Can you tell us more about that?
2: Yes, so the incident itself, there were several after-action reviews that were conducted both internally at UCF and by consultants and other professionals that came in to evaluate uh, what led up to the incident and the response and what needed to be fixed So I ended up joining, the incident happened in March of 2013, and I ended up joining as a result of all of those after-action reviews in December of 2014. But at that time, we had approximately 1,900 security cameras on campus spread across 58 different servers, and they weren't managed to any campus standard or centrally for, for UCF. We realized there was a lack of training for end users. There was no policy on how or where cameras were installed. So they had a lot of cameras, but they weren't necessarily being maintained or upgraded or replaced at end of life. So as far as the upgrades that we looked at, we started by getting the right people on my team. So after I was hired, I was able to hire a coordinator to focus on our security cameras. And then I followed that up by hiring a coordinator to focus on access control. So to fix the security camera infrastructure that we had, We ended up purchasing a 3-petabyte server farm, and we purchased it through Pivot3. That allowed us to eliminate the 58 aging servers that really didn't have the proper storage or retention for video, which for the state of Florida is 30 days. And by getting that infrastructure in place, we have built-in redundancy and we have room for growth, which UCF is rapidly growing. We've also developed construction standards for all new buildings. In the three and a half years that I've been with UCF, we've been directly involved with about a dozen new buildings for construction and we're now building a new downtown Orlando campus which will bring our camera count easily to over 3000 cameras we've consolidated several different brands of video video management software vmss that we were using and we've upgraded them all to one standard which we're using milestone corporate VMS right now, and that's given us a very robust ability to manage our cameras very efficiently. On the access control side, um, as I mentioned, we've hired a coordinator to, to help with that space, but we had very similar issues of disparity. So the coordinator I hired has a very strong IT background, which in the security industry, that's becoming more important today and we took our software, we did have some different versions of access control software, but we leveraged on our campus campus standard, which is open options DNA fusion. And we've now integrated that with our HR systems so this is allowing us to provision and deprovision all of our students staff employees and some visitors much more efficiently than we've done in the past and we've also assumed the responsibility for contract security guards which do exist in addition to our fully sworn police department at ucf so prior to our, our office's establishment our guards were managed by our university police department we've taken them on we've automated their guard tours and now we have better efficiency and accountability And all of those things combined has drastically improved security at UCF.
0: Yes, that's fantastic. Sounds like you have taken a lot of different vendors and put them together to be one holistic solution. You all have also had some VIPs, some high-profile speakers and guests visit UCF. Uh, What is the overall strategy that you take from a security standpoint when those VIPs come to town?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. So during the last presidential race, UCF was host to both President Obama and Donald Trump while he was campaigning. That same election year, we also hosted a U.S. senatorial debate between Senator Marco Rubio and his competitor, Representative Patrick Murphy. We frequently have Governor Scott visit the campus for different events. And most recently, Bill Gates came to look at some of the innovative research that's being done on robotic arms for children. In addition to those high-profile guests, we do have a 10,000-seat arena which is also home to our basketball teams and that brings in a lot of professional entertainers and uh, different types of events there And after the Pulse nightclub shooting that happened in Orlando, UCF hosted several vigils. We were one of the largest locations for blood donations after that event happened, and uh, also food and water and other donations for that event. So when that event happened, too, we were very concerned about security being a very soft target for some of the vigils that were held and the, the very large concern that happened after the Pulse attack happened. So what we what we do for the larger events that we have is we try to prepare as best as we can, and we don't do that as just our office or department. We do that across our UCF community and with others. So when you're dealing with presidential campaigns and visits, you're dealing with staffers from the White House, the Secret Service, FBI, and many other agencies that will come usually on very short notice. That's been our experience that we don't get a lot of advance notice to plan and host this event. So we're doing it very quickly um, in partnership with them. But we're, we're fortunate to have developed good relationships with our many surrounding municipalities that have a mutual interest in making sure the events are held very safely and securely. So when possible, we'll augment our security and try to plan for the potential for protests, which uh, with president Trump, there were a lot of protesters for president Obama when he was campaigning for Hillary. We had um, nothing but a positive atmosphere. So it was two drastically uh, different dynamics when dealing with the crowds and um, the events that led up to, and then the event itself. And, um uh, The news media also is another element that uh, in security we don't often have to deal with, but you have to recognize the fact that they're going to cover those large-scale events, and then you're going to have a a vast increase to traffic and parking congestion and problems, and those those can uh, also have for security. Our preparation also involves the use of checklists. And our checklists are detailed enough that they cover nearly everything we would have to do or plan for an event to make sure it's successful in its execution. And then when the event is over, we'll look at those checklists, see if they were lacking in any way. And we always tr- uh, try to bring our larger campus team back together, conduct a hot wash or a debriefing of the event. And then we always prepare an after-action review, which helps fully document everything that went on. So we've got that for the next event that occurs.
0: And finally, you guys have a new Global Security Operations Center. I know that you had to sleep in it during the hurricanes to write them out, but other than, than that fun fact, what else are you using that GSOC for?
2: So our, our new GSOC was constructed and it was put into our old media briefing space. So most emergency operations center, which our, our department sits in our emergency operations center facility, uh, most EOCs have a media briefing room but ours had gone largely unused and our scope and role in security was new to UCF. So we needed a place to better monitor all of our security cameras, access control, so even though we're the University of Central Florida, we thought that the term Global Security Operations Center was more appropriate because we are increasing our travel abroad program for our students and staff from about 300 a year a few years ago to 3,000 students and staff a year in the, in the upcoming years. So being able to safely track and um, get a hold of students in the event of natural disasters or terrorist attacks that happen in foreign countries where they're visiting. It's very important to anyone that has anyone on foreign travel, but we thought that the GSOC could play a pivotal role in tracking um, our travelers abroad. So we modified a space, our media briefing room, and we put up a nice video wall, which is comprised of eight 55-inch displays in a two-by-four configuration, and we have four televisions in a two-by-two configuration, And we've set up three operator workstations to control all of and manage all of this content. So right at this point, the construction was recently completed. We are not staffed 24-7 for this operation. That's something we're pursuing. But we do activate the Global Security Operations Center now for our football games and on any large events that we have because it's a great resource to easily pull up several camera feeds at one time, pull up our access control systems, be able to open or lock down buildings uh, very quickly, manage our international travel, also keep track of weather, and it provides us just fantastic situational awareness. So I think it's... um, something we're quite proud of. It's, it's not something that a lot of universities have.
0: Well, I want to thank you so much, Joe, for sharing all of these you know, initiatives with us, these stories, and these are just great examples of, of securing a large campus. And we really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us today for the podcast. Thanks so much.
2: You're welcome, Holly. Thank you for the opportunity. Really appreciate being part of Security Management's issue this month. Anything we can do to help our partners in higher education or the K-12 community enhance their programs, we're glad to help. So thank you.
0: That does it for this month's podcast. I'd like to thank you all for tuning in and encourage you to check out the bonus material and special editions of the podcast posted throughout the month. And if you haven't already, subscribe to us on SoundCloud or iTunes so you don't miss an episode. Comments, questions, or feedback, please send us a line at podcast at asisonline.org. Once again, I'm your host, associate editor, Holly gilbert Stoyle Thanks so much for tuning in. Until next time, bye-bye.